we took a short hiatus, but we're back. And I want to introduce you to my very special guest, uh, Jeanette Quinlan. And I've known Jeanette for many years, um, but I've actually just asked her to be on the podcast, which I don't know why it took me so long. But um, Jeanette is a senior program manager for NASA and civil space programs at Spacelink Corporation. So a lot of people here at NASA think she works at NASA, but no, she works at Spacelink with NASA. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's an honor to be to be invited and um, and talk to your audience. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Um, so we're going to go right and get started. We were having a great conversation about our kids before this, but we're going to be talking about Jeanette today. So what is a senior program manager at Spacelink? What do you do? Yeah, so um, I uh, so program managers uh, kind of run the day-to-day -day operations of a program, uh, do a lot of the financial, you know, uh, modeling to make sure that we're staying on track with our budgets. Um, it's a lot of, you know, sometimes we just say herding cats and, uh, you know, making sure people are following up on their action items, writing the action item lists, um, making sure that everybody's talking to one another. Um, we're just kind of like running the program and making sure that it's moving along, staying on schedule, especially is, you know, a particularly challenging thing and making sure everybody's got what they need, supporting them in the background to make the, uh, make the program successful. Um, and like you mentioned, I work specifically with our NASA and civil space programs. So that's, um, anything NASA and then civil space is like the Canadian Space Agency, the European Space Agency. Um, and we've, we're doing some really exciting work. We've got a picture of the ISS um, over here, the International Space Station. Um, we're working with a lot of the commercial space station uh, companies that are working on that for the future when the International Space Station retires at the end of the decade. Oh, wow. Well, okay. I didn't know that it was retiring, which is cool. There's someone I met recently that works at Axiom. So are you working with like that organization? They are actually one of our partners. We've announced that um, publicly. Uh, we are going to put a terminal on their station um, end of 2024, maybe 2025 timeframe which is going to communicate with our satellites. I've got to get used to this, uh, <laughs> which are here, uh, which are in a higher orbit. So I'll go into maybe a little bit of what we do later, but um, I am, we are working with um, Axiom Space on their commercial space uh, habit, habitat, their commercial space station, which is actually going to initially attach to the International Space Station before it becomes its own uh, free-flying station. So, okay, yeah, we're going to get into exactly what you do, but this is so amazing. So when the space station is retired, then what? What is, what's going to be the space station after that? So, so this, the International Space Station, which has uh, been up there since the 90s, if I'm not mistaken, I certainly remember seeing the habitats as a child um, as they were being built in the 90s. And um, so they were launched initially with the um, with the space shuttle when that was still running. Mm -hmm. um, it so it's getting old. You know the systems on there are pretty old. Um, they upgrade it certainly, but you know it's time for for the next one. Um, so in twenty, I think the contract is through twenty thirty, if I'm not mistaken. And then the plan is to is to move to the commercial um, space station. So NASA has funded 
four different companies or four different projects, I should say, because um, some of those some of those projects have multiple companies involved. Uh, to kind of work on what is that next space station going to be. And there could be multiple winners eventually. There could be just one winner eventually. Right now, they're kind of, um, Axiom is actually uh, the, the first one that was funded. So they're a little bit of ahead. Uh, but they just, they earlier this year, they awarded um, quite a bit of money to three different projects um, in something called the Commercial Leo Destinations and the, that takes them through their first um, design reviews, their major design reviews. So NASA can kind of get a get a sense of the um, of the projects, and um, it's a, you know it's 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 quite a bit of quite a bit of taxpayer dollars um, to do that. But the idea is NASA is not going to be footing the bill. The commercial, uh, sorry, the civil space programs around the world are not going to be footing the bill. It's going to yeah. be kind of NASA and um, private companies. So. You're going to start to see more private astronauts um, going forward. So they might be wealthy individuals who are going, might be, um, you know, somebody from, from various governments uh, that are going. It, it might um, change a little bit of the dynamic, but we'll always have the NASA astronauts too that are that are going right. to those missions. Yeah, the the woman that I met at Axiom, she told me uh, part of what they're going to do. I don't know if I'm at liberty to say. But I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You know, that that's the plan for the International Space Day, or at least part of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's gonna it's just gonna change how we've done space before, but everything kind of is is right now. Absolutely. That's that's so cool. All right, so we're gonna get back to you. Um, so what is Spacelink Corporation? What do they do? So you could think of our satellites as kind of like a telephone pole in the sky. So what, what happens right now, you know, if you ever look at like Google Maps and you go to like the satellite view and you can uh -huh. see a picture of like your street or your house or something like that, that's taken by a satellite that is at about the same, you know, height above the earth as the International Space Station. They go around every 90 minutes. Um, the problem is they're only over a ground station where they can downlink their data, maybe for a 10 minute pass, you know, best case scenario, if there's clouds, right. it can be a little bit worse. You know, they don't, might not get that high of a link. So not only is, are they limited in the data that can get down, but also the time that it can get down. So it, there may only be one or two ground stations and you're going around every 90 minutes. So, you know, best case, you're getting that data every 45 minutes. Right. Um, what we're doing is we're actually building satellites at a higher orbit. So we'll always, and we're building uh, four that are going around the equator of the earth at a much higher orbit. So it's kind of like, you know, trying to look at a city at the top of the Salesforce tower versus like a five-story building, yeah. you know? So we're kind of at the top of that Salesforce tower. So we can see all those five-story buildings that are down there. Um, and so our satellites will always be in view. They can talk to each other. So if you have limits on, you know, data going down to the United States, for example, right. uh, some customers, um, you can you can do that. So uh, it's it's really just they call them relay satellites. It's a telephone pole in the sky um, between our customers in low Earth orbit and our satellites. And between our satellites, we use laser communication. Um, it's actually a very effective way of, of transmitting high data in space, but it's more limited when you get to the ground because it, it can be scattered by cloud cover. Mm -hmm. um, so we're using radio frequency, a traditional radio frequency 
um, from our satellites uh, down to the ground. Um, so we're going to put a laser on the International Space Station through um, Axiom. Uh, it'll be facing away from the Earth. Um, right. <laughs> for, for those who are worried about that. <laughs> Uh, in, uh, like I said, at the end of 2024, you know, kind of 2025 um, timeframe. And so we're serving the customers who need data right away, uh, maybe customers who need higher speeds. Uh, you know, for example, right now, the International Space Station only gets a couple hundred megabits per second. Um, and we're talking gigabits per second um, mm. types of speeds. So now when you see videos from space station, they're very grainy. A lot of times they're like shutting down other non-critical systems just so that they can communicate and get that video feed. Um, so we'll be able to make that, you know, a lot more seamless and, and higher quality. Right. And that was, I was just going to ask, like, what is the data that you're getting? What information are you bringing down to earth? So one of course is, the International Space Station, the people on there, their communication. Um, what other data or information will we get quicker? Yeah, so you know, thinking back to those Google imaging satellites, you know, that's kind of for a commercial basis. But you can imagine that there's a lot of satellites imaging. You know, we've seen just with the war in re Ukraine recently, or after a disaster. Um, you know, those those satellites that are imaging. You know, if you've got a live disaster. And you have to wait 90 minutes till you can download your data or 45 minutes till you can download your data. You know, that might be too late for the search and rescue teams or for any sort of emergency services. Um, so being able to do disaster relief real time and assess the situation real time, that's very important. And certainly, you know, for for warfare or, you know, anything that's really time critical um, there. So we're, you know, it's customers who not only need higher data, but also customers who need the data as quickly as possible. Gotcha. Oh, wow. So that's amazing. And you're working with uh, government uh, businesses, not a business, but NASA like that, but then other organizations similar to NASA in Europe, mm -hmm. Canada, and in private places too, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and you bring that all together in what capacity? So I am, you know, for example, when we're putting this laser on the space station, I'm making sure that, you know, the, the folks who are making the laser are sending uh -huh. us their drawings and their specifications in the right time so that the folks at Axiom can be designing the platform. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're making sure like even, you know, Somebody's using metrics. Somebody's using imperial units. You know, how do we how do we go between those and working with the systems engineer on that? Um, working even with our network. You know, how does this work once you get the data to the ground to be able to get the data to to the customer? Um, so you know, it's setting up weekly meetings. It's making sure you know, hey, you owe this this drawing right now. You owe this specification right now. Uh, you know, and moving moving that kind of thing forward. Um, We've set out a schedule when we're going to launch, um, you know, launch to space. So, you know, how do we back up on milestones and the design reviews and the technical meetings that we need to have in order to meet those launch days? So it's, you know, compatibility, schedule, and then staying on budget, of course, too. Wow. Yeah. So I, like I mentioned earlier, you know, we've known each other for quite a few years. And you were working on satellites then. So yeah. 
<laughs> what got you into satellites? How did you start this type of career path? Yeah, and it was, uh, it, you know, it's kind of by chance uh, in a way. So um, it goes back to when I was a little girl. Um, my, my parents separated when I was young and my mom went back to school. She realized she needed to go back to school. Um, she was a um, Spanish and Italian teacher for um, Pittsburgh Public Schools. So I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, so I'm an East Coast transplant out here to California. Um, and she would have to go to the, you know, the computer center. I'm an older millennial. So, you know, I was, I was a kid and, you know, we didn't have computers in our house. So she would right. go to the computer center to write her papers or do research. And she would drop us off at the Carnegie Library because, you know, Pittsburgh has this amazing library system, you know, from, from philanthropists, from like um, Carnegie, like uh, Andrew Carnegie. And I remember just looking in the children's section and finding a book on Sally Ride. And, you know, she had curly dark hair, like she kind of looked like me. And, you know, you know, representation is so important. I don't know what would have happened if I found a book on a male astronaut, you know, but this really like clicked with me. And I was like, I want to be an astronaut. Um, so I was kind of interested in anything space. Um, I really wish the internet was around because yeah. in Pittsburgh, there wasn't any aerospace, you know, especially at the time. Now there's one or two companies that are there. There's even a moon museum in Pittsburgh, but there was nothing like that when I was growing up. So I didn't know how you became an astronaut. My, my dad was a political journalist. My mom was a foreign language teacher. You know, they really didn't know what to do with this girl who was interested in math and science. Um, so I, uh, I ended up majoring in, in, in mechanical engineering. Um, I didn't know what aerospace engineering was. I thought that was for people who want to make airplanes. Um, right. Just so, just like there just was no guidance. Um, so mechanical engineering was was good. It was like kind of broad. Um, and then at my career fair, uh, I went to the University of Rochester. There was this company that had, and you know, um, the pop up banner or whatever they had behind them. They had a picture of a satellite, and they were hiring mechanical engineers and new grads. And I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> What's going on? It never occurred to me that there's other things in space just besides people in the in the shuttle. Right. Um, so I um, I applied and was and ended up um, working as a uh, as a thermal engineer to start my career. And so that was um, 17 years ago. So um, I've I started, I was still 21 when I, when I started working, um, because I have a summer birthday. So I was, I was just this young, young little, uh, um, thermal engineer, but so excited to work in the space industry. I never thought that was, um, a possibility. Um, so I'm really, really grateful to the career center for putting, you know, for putting that, that all together. And, um, when I was graduating too, it was kind of the 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 Iraq and Afghanistan wars had just started, so mm -hmm. there was a lot of defense hiring as well um, with with young engineers. So that was kind of a, a, a an easy career path, I guess, um, for the for um, starting to work right after your bachelor's. Right, and so yeah, we were talking about that earlier. You started working twenty one with a bachelor's, and haven't stopped. Really? <laughs> You've been working yeah. in that field since then. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. You know, and a lot of people 
think you have to have a master's, a PhD to get into this, but you, you've been doing this, as you said, for 17 years, right? With a bachelor's. In, uh, in, in your heat transfer class, you know, for anybody who's taken aerospace or, or mechanical, especially, you know, they say, oh, there's this thing called radiation heat transfer, and we're going to spend half a class on it. You'll never need it in school, like in the real world, whatever. And I did that for 11 years. I did radiation <laughs> heat transfer because I worked on, on satellites. So, you know, a lot of it was just on the job and amazing mentors who were so patient with me, you know, teaching me. I had the fundamentals for my education, but what I was doing was so specific. It's really not, it's really not taught in schools or maybe like specialized right. schools. Um, but uh, a lot of it, a lot of it was on the job training. So like my master's was like that first two years of like <laughs> mentored by colleagues, you know, who were essentially um, my professors and I'm, you know, I'm, really, really grateful to them for their patience and kind of helping to, to build that foundation, um, to build upon that foundation that I had from school and learning this specialty. Well, yeah, and I mean, <coughs> excuse me, heat transfer goes whoo, over my head because, you know, oh. I'm straight biology, straight just miscellaneous animal facts is what you want to <laughs> get from me. You must have the best memorization <laughs> of everything. Well, no, because I mean, with engineering, you know, I feel like engineering is a step above physics. And that is all the math you have to remember, what letters go where, what these letters, you know, stand for, which is a lot of memorization that I could never get. Huh? <laughs> That's just... But, you know, you did, you got a, uh, and you got this opportunity to learn on the job, which not everybody gets. So yes. yeah. how do you feel, you know, was that stepping stone for you? Getting those opportunities, the mentors, or just being in the right place at the right time? I I think, um, you know, I was, I was dedicated to, to, I'm gonna work, you know, when I graduate, like no matter what it was. Um, and I interviewed at, three different places. I actually had three offers before the end of my first semester senior year of college. Oh, um, wow. So I was, I was going to work. I was going to go into the working world. My four-year bachelor's degree was just such a gateway for me into like okay. a different lifestyle and being independent. And like, you know, I, I wanted to be independent by the time, from the time I was like 15 or 16. So, um, you know, I, it was it was kind of my my way of doing that. I though would have never known about the aerospace industry and being able to work in that if it hadn't been for the companies at the career fair brought to mm -hmm. me. I think that was a little bit of luck. It being the you know the start of of unfortunately the start of two wars. You know that we had that we right. had just gotten into, um, but that but those com you know the defense companies were hiring. Uh, young, young graduates, and I was determined to work. So it kind of, it kind of, you know, it was, it was a little bit of determination, of course, and, and drive. Um, but three or four years later, every, you know, we were in the recession, and people who were graduating with the same degree were not finding jobs. So, you know, right. let, me, let me acknowledge that, you know, and I was able to, to stay at the jobs and stay and stay employed, but it would have been a lot harder to find a job if I had been a couple of years younger. 
Oh, wow. I mean, that that's good to note. And it's good that you brought that up because a lot of people think you go into a STEM career or, or STEM field in your education that, boom, automatically you're going to get a job coming out of school and you got to work. You got to network or you have to find some sort of opportunity for, you know, for you, there was the job fair, which is great, but we don't have job fairs like that in yeah. most places that I know of, you know? Yeah. Do so you think that's, yeah, you think that's something we should be bringing back to college level or even high school level? I think certainly college level, you know, and there's, there's, um, you know, it, it was, I don't even know how they organized it, you know, that career fair, but then there's, you know, there's like big conferences like Nesby has like a big career fair every year mm-hmm. at the end of the year for, for new graduates um, to be hired. Um, you know, I think, I think even like San Luis Obispo, um, I think we've, I've worked for companies that have gone down to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and, um, you know, participated in their career fair. Um, but I wish there was something that every college was doing. But the liberal arts majors were always complaining that the career fair was just for STEM fields. You know, <laughs> there was nobody, there was nobody like hiring religion majors or, or hiring English majors at those career fairs. So there, you know, there was always the complaint, you know, that it was right. just a bunch of like finance and like engineering places. I mean, I get you're not going to be perfect, right? I mean, you can't, you, if, especially if you're having a career for an auditorium, like how many are you going to really fit in there? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I'm not trying to hate or say, you know, anything negative, but I don't know what job you get with a religion, you know, <laughs> bachelor's degree. There were, there were a lot of those. There were a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I honestly do not know, but but um, one friend who's had made a very good career of it became a rabbi. Um, he really needed to be a religion major, but I'm but I uh, I don't know that everybody else went into you know that went into that field and stayed in that field. Um, right. So. Well, that's cool though. I mean, yeah that that makes me think. You know, I went to a small HBCU and we didn't have a career fair. Mm-hmm. I think you know if we had that opportunity for people to come and talk and say, hey, this is what we have to offer or we're looking for new grads, then yeah, that'd have been pretty dope, I think. And companies should be going to HBCUs. Yeah, yeah. And I've been seeing like virtual job fairs now because of the pandemic, you know? So now, you know, now you're putting this thought in my head because I'm like, hmm. I see those virtual career fairs. I honestly don't know who's doing what, but I wonder, are they going to the smaller schools, not just HBCUs, but even the small liberal arts schools, you know, or yeah. women only colleges? I wonder how that's going. Yeah, I talked to somebody who works for, I'll put it, a large oil company in the area um, who kind of knew the country by the convention centers because he went and represented his company at all of the Nesby uh, career career fairs um, every year. <laughs> he knew Pittsburgh <laughs> by the convention center. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, there's, there's kind of those like large organizations, but I think you have to travel to them and not every college student is gonna have, you know, I certainly didn't have a budget to travel to a, to a career yeah. fair. Yeah, my school is in a really small town and we don't, there's no, I know there's no convention center there, you know, (laughs) it would have been like an hour away and not everybody would have had that opportunity. Yeah. Hmm. 
good to know. Something definitely to think about as I continue to try and bring STEM to the forefront for especially for our kids. Um, but yeah, that's really cool. So I'm going to go back to you because we went on a tangent. You were, no, this is what happens on the podcast. It happens all the time. But, you know, so you you saw the book on Sally Ride. You decided to go into school. Didn't know what aero, uh, aerodynamics or aerospace engineering was. So mechanical engineering, but still ended up working on satellites for, you know, stuff like that. And what happened to your dream of being an astronaut, though? Did you ever, like, look into it and apply? Um, it requires a master's. Oh, I did not realize. That. You want to apply through NASA? Um, it requires a master's, um, of course. Uh, you know, in addition, but if you know, I mean, I, I'm not eligible for the private astronaut. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing, doing uh, you know, no, you can't afford that on an aerospace engineer's budget. Um, so, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I would go up. I would go up in a heartbeat. You know, still. Um, on any, you know, I'd love to do something that was more of the space station, but even these like eight minute rides, like I take an eight minute ride, that'd be fine. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's helped, but I, I love just supporting the folks that are going into space, you know, and that, and having been around astronauts, I know you've been around some astronauts, like they just like, there's just a magic um, to them. So <laughs> Um, I feel like the dummy in a room when I'm around people like that. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> You've done this? You've done all of this? Okay. We all have imposter syndrome around. around. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, they, they literally have like the coolest job. Yeah. But, you know, you get to work with all these organizations that are going to space. So, you know, you rub elbows with the right people. You get that that extra seed on the ride that's going up anyway, you know, you never know. I hope so. I hope so. And it's fun even go to go to Houston. Um, and we do so, you know, Axiom is located really close to the <coughs> center. And there's just like little pictures of astronauts and everything's called like Apollo street and Gemini uh -huh. street. And like, it's just this like space nerdy kind of, um, kind of part of part of Houston. Yeah. I hear there's a bar right outside the Johnson space center that, has all the pictures of the astronauts on there that like all of them go to when they do whatever they're doing at the Johnson Center in Houston and you know I've been to one of those. I've been to one of those. Oh have you <laughs> I have not yet but now that I know it exists I'm going next time I'm in Houston I'm going to go over there and check it out. Yeah. Just go yeah you know um you never know like I had Dr. Cyan Proctor on my podcast. Yes, yes. And like a few years later, now she's going to space. So you never know, is what I'm saying. You just never know. Yeah, first black woman to pilot a um, a spacecraft. Yes, yes, yes. And and she piloted it. I'm I'm assuming I, I can't remember if she has her pilot license, but she, I know she's a geologist. You know, her PhD is in geology. But she was a pilot for this, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, actually, inspiration for a documentary, if you haven't already, it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've reached out to her, you know, and told her congratulations and all that good stuff. You know, she's 
big time now. So, you know, I barely get a response anymore, but you know, I, I'm proud of her. You knew her before she was big. Yeah, I know, you know, because I mean, I reached out to her because we were both on um, Genius with Stephen Hawking, different episodes, but that's how I met her because she was on an episode of that. And I was like, oh, cool. We had a great conversation. And now look at her. Now she's big name, doing all this big stuff. And I'm like, congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) But that's cool. That's cool. So with what you're doing now with the satellites and the work you're doing at um, Space Link, uh, first of all, how long have you been at Space Link? Um, a little bit over a year. Okay. Over a year. The company's been around about um, two, less than two years. Um, mm. So we're still a startup. We're only about 33 people at the company right now. Oh, okay. Oh, that's cool. And like you got there, though, over a year ago. I'm guessing it was less than that. Yeah, yeah. I think I was it was probably around twenty-ish, twenty-five-ish. So what made you go to the toward the startup type of area? I started my career at big aerospace companies and then just being in the Bay Area, um, in twenty fourteen I worked at my first space startup. Um I got um kind of recruited by a former colleague at one of the large aerospace companies who had gone to them they were looking for thermal engineers as a specialty um and he reached out and said you know why don't why don't you submit so i was actually very happy where i was but i was like i gotta try this thing you know i'm in the bay area there these space startups are starting to happen um and i've been at startups or very small companies or like i worked for an aerospace um, startup accelerator for a little while for about a year and a half um since 2014 um so i i really like the ability to like pivot and change um very quickly not have uh and have a lot of freedom in how you can kind of design the the system um but uh yeah i i think i've i think i'm like I, I sort of wanted to work at a bigger company, but Spacelink was great because it's a lot of people that I worked with before. It's a lot of veterans in the industry working at a small company. So, you know, we bring that experience of this is this is how it has been done, but then we have that freedom to change very quickly, much bigger, much quicker than you could at a, at a big company. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, being a startup gives you, I know it, gives you the opportunity to have your voice heard. So much yes. smaller people, you know, everyone is given the opportunity to speak and, and say, yeah, you we should go this direction or this direction, right? Yeah. What do you see for the future of you at Spacelink? Um, we, I'm working with, um, uh, I, I, so I'm working, you know, a lot with the business development person uh, who specializes in our NASA programs. And like every time he wins a program, I'm like, I don't know if I can handle more, <laughs> you know, more and more <laughs> programs. I'm like, you're too successful at this. You're too good at this. Um, so, you know, eventually I'd love to then manage other program managers for the NASA and civil space, or even, you know, manage other program managers, um, you know, may- maybe do, do a little bit of commercial or a little bit of the Department of Defense um, customers, DOD customers. Um, that we have. So for right now, um, managing uh, the Axiom program that we talked about, and then another smaller NASA study um, that we have going on. But if we keep 
if we keep on being successful, um, then hopefully, you know, I'm managing uh, lots of folks. And then I really like kind of, uh, you know, having that engineering foundation with going into the, um, the operations uh, side of things. Okay, cool. So um, just a reminder that we are live on Facebook and uh, YouTube. So if you have questions, feel free to put them in the chat. We have one from Danielle said she was a little late, but wants to know what kind of work do you do on the satellites? And what, if any involvement, do you have with launching satellites? Yeah, so um, right now I'm a program manager. We kind of make sure that everything uh, stays on schedule. Uh, you know, I'm making sure that um, we've got all the, you know, meeting all the milestones, um, staying on budget and things like that. But I started my career as a thermal engineer and a thermal engineer makes sure that everything on the satellite stays at the right temperature from, you know, when it's on the ground, when it's being built, when it's being tested to that first day on orbit and maybe, you know, the 20th year that it's on orbit, no matter how you want to use the satellite, no matter, you know, how it, how it's oriented and, and orbiting the earth. Um, so I've sat launch, I've sat in mission control, with the headset, um, which was which was definitely a career highlight. Um, so I've I've never been to a launch base. I want to see a I, I've seen a launch live, but not of my own satellites. Um, but I want to you know go and like see something. I, I've sat in mission control while something else launches very far away <laughs> um, in, in in Kazakhstan actually, um, but uh, never you know been able to see see my satellite launch or my work launch um, real time. <laughs> uh, Christina says, I'm still thinking about the ISS retiring the International Space Station. Yeah, you know, I was shocked to hear that too. I didn't realize, I mean, it makes sense, but I didn't realize that that was something that was going to be happening. We'll get new shiny space stations up there. So are uh, new International Space Stations being built now? Uh, more of the commercial space stations. Um, okay. Actually, other countries like China has a space station. They have astronauts that are up there. You know, we're probably not going to necessarily collaborate with them and you know send U.S. astronauts up there. Um, but there is a uh, there is a Chinese space station that's up there. And then we've got these you know four different commercial companies that are that are working with NASA um, on funding for the uh, for the next space station. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, and we we kind of spoke about that earlier. There's some, you know, commercial companies that's building them. If you want to know what Axiom is doing, you can call me. I'm not going to say it out on you know, because <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to, but it's so cool. Um, but yeah, there's there's company, private companies that are doing that. Um, Danielle asked, what's the purpose functions of various satellites? Yeah, so there's the satellites that are imaging the Earth. Um, you know, think of your Google your Google uh, Maps. You know, when you're when you're on Google Maps and you switch to satellite view and you can see your street or your house. Um, there's lots of satellites like that. There's ones that are even working in different wavelengths. So there's like radar satellites, synthetic aperture radar satellites that can see through clouds. Um, those are really good for disaster relief. You know, if there's a hurricane or something like that and you don't have really good visibility, you can actually see through the clouds with that type of technology. Um, there's hyperspectral imaging. There's all sorts of different imaging satellites. And then there's communication satellites. So if you're in an airplane and you're getting Wi-Fi, 
that's coming from a satellite. Um, you know, DirecTV, Dish Network, um, Sirius and XM uh, radio, those are all, you know, satellite radios. Those are actually satellites that are up there that are, um, that are giving that signal. So those are kind of the two primary, I would say, are the Earth observation um, in some way and then the communication satellites. Right. And something that we had talked about earlier were uh, the lasers that are being used that helps, uh, I think, for some of the later people, maybe re-explain how lasers are important on satellites, please. Yeah, so, so they, everything communicates in um, traditionally radio frequency. You know, you've got, you've got radio frequency receivers in your cell phone. You know, there's, there's radio frequency everywhere. It's, um, uh, but lasers are, it's still a frequency, but it's like a much higher frequency. So you can put a lot more data through that than you can regular um, free radio frequency. Um, and um, it's, it's really good in space because you can send, you know, large data sets really far. I mean, we're even looking at, at, at solutions around the moon um, where we'd be able, you know, there's, there's a lot of work going on trying to go back to the moon. Um, so there's, you know, we're, we're working on a couple of, you know, proposals that are related to um, putting lasers around the moon and being able to transmit data for astronauts that are going to go back or exploration that's going to be going back to the moon. Um, but it does have trouble going through clouds. So when you have a ground station, you know, if it, it, it's very, very sensitive to clouds. So we use radio frequency for that because that's a little bit, um, a little bit more mature technology and has less chance of having outages. All right. Well, that's cool. Um, <coughs> being able to see through clouds. No, I think they're having a hard time with the clouds. But, well, you well, there's, you know, imaging satellites that go, that see through the clouds too. Oh, okay. Um, I think that's what um, that's what they're referring to. Okay. Is, is, so you're sending you send this like radar signal from the satellite down and based on kind of where it hits and you know hitting different um different like levels of you know it could see a, a, the outline of a ship in a port or something like that and then that signal bounces off of the earth and then back to the satellite and the satellite can read that image it looks really ugly if you just look at the image but there's lots of like software that can kind of interpret um, those kind of uh, images. Wow, that's so cool. Um, and thank you everyone for all the questions, comments, I appreciate yeah, it. Um, hello to the Black Math Academy, I see you there. Um, and Danielle asks, do you collaborate with intelligence agencies and or other countries? Yes, we do have um, we do have a whole division of the company that's working with the Department of Defense. Um, so that's you know that's DARPA. We've announced some DARPA um, programs as well. Um, we I see I watch too many thriller movies. Don't believe everything in the movies, um, but uh, you know we do work with um, the Department of Defense. You know certainly they need to be able to get images back, you know, real time, you, you know, think of disaster relief or wartime, you know, type of type of applications there. Um, and then, yeah, we can work with other countries. There's limitations on, on some countries. Um, just, 
because of geopolitical reasons. Um, so, you know, there are some that are that we're not really able to collaborate with. Um, but, you know, we're very friendly with a lot of European countries, um, a lot of Asian countries as well. So, you know, you see you see a lot of cross um, cross collaboration there. Um, and we could even work with, you know, agencies um, there and, and on the civil space side, we've got Canadian Space Agency, European Space Agency, JAXA, which is the Japanese um, space agency. Um, you know, all of those folks also have modules on the International Space Station. So there's, you know, a history of, of peace and uh, collaboration. Well, that's, yeah, that's cool that <laughs> at least we have some places that like the U.S. still and still willing to work with us <laughs> on various things. Because yeah, I'm I'm not gonna even go there. But yeah, that's uh thank you for the, that question. And it's cool that that's the work you're doing. And earlier, Jeanette mentioned, you know, as a program manager, that that's that's all her hands in those mini pots, bringing all of those people together, making sure that program is working, doing all the things that they need to do, say they're doing, in collaboration with one another. So. Um, it's really cool that we're getting to learn what's going on behind the scenes because I, quite honestly, myself included, do we really know how many space stations are there? How many satellites are out there? How many things is uh, being used? We just use our phone, we use our computers. You know, I was on a plane recently with the internet, but I don't think about how it works, right? And so there's all these different satellites and. I mean, I'm kind of afraid to ask if you know this answer, how many satellites are up there? Um, oh my gosh, it's gotta be thousands at this point. Um, there's some satellites that are as small as a shoebox. They're literally four inches by four inches by a foot long. I mean, there's some that are even smaller than that. Um, you know, but people have even built entire businesses based on these small satellites and they've launched hundreds of satellites and there's lots of those companies um, that are that are out there. Um, so there's thousands. I mean, we worry about them running into the space stations. We worry about, you know, where, there, where there's humans on board. Um, we worry about them colliding into each other. And then you know, they create these like debris fields. And then those, the, that debris goes into another satellite. And um, so there's, there's, uh, there's whole, you know, agencies that track these kind of things and make sure that they they aren't supposed to run into each other. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot out there. And we don't. And and when they're not working or they're obsolete or you know no longer available, they just stay there, right? They become space garbage. I don't know if that's the right term. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of dead satellites up there. We call them. Um, and what. What you do, uh, so there's there's a little tiny, tiny bit of atmosphere, you know, on those satellites, especially the ones that are close to the Earth in our imaging. So eventually it'll drag down the satellite, but you have to prove that your satellite will deorbit in like, I think it's 25 years or something like that. So it could be up there for 25 years and then everything burns up in the atmosphere. There's a lot of safety checks to make sure that everything that's on there will burn up. You're not allowed to use certain materials that are a little bit more dangerous, um, that don't necessarily burn up. Um, and then for some of those satellites that go really far out, like the Sirius XM satellites, a lot of the ones that you're using for internet in your airplane, they are required 
to have just enough fuel on board left that they go to a higher orbit. We call it the graveyard orbit, where <laughs> they go out there and, you know, live live the rest of their lives. That, that's where they their are. Their lives out there. So, um, you know, there's a lot less satellites um, that are out there, but there's, there. you know, we've been sending satellites that far up for decades. Um, they work for about 15, 20 years, and then they have to have just enough fuel to kind of get out of the way of the other satellites. Wow. That's okay. Cool. All right. Uh, I think you answered this question. Are satellites used by airport towers to monitor plane flights? There's, I think they're using radio frequency for the most part, just between the airplane and the, um, and the, uh, the, the tower, the, the tower, tower the, um, I don't know that they're necessarily using satellites, but you know the, the airplanes do like send a ping that goes up to the satellite to show its location. And years ago, when there was like the the plane that like went missing, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of work done about like how do we make sure that there's more frequent, <laughs> you know, pings going to the satellite so that we know, you know, and that's just a very low like low data like um, like an IoT like kind of you know level of data. Gotcha. Okay. Well then, yeah, you didn't answer that. So I'm glad I asked. <laughs> the Black Math Academy, excuse me. Have you heard about these 5G capable satellites that Omnispace and Lockheed Martin are working on? How do the, how do they work? Um, so I'm a, I'm a thermal engineer. So all I know is that like they cause a lot of heat. Um, so, you know, um, the, I, I'm not going to be able to talk you know, in depth as somebody who's like a radio frequency engineer or knows those payloads a little bit more. Um, but they're essentially cell phone towers in the sky as well. Um, and they're, uh, you know, any sort of 5G capable satellites are, um, I, I believe they're, you know, they're generally sending, um, you, you know, kind of relaying the signal. Um, and that's what, you know, when you, when you're in your airplane and you say like, hey, I want to go to, CNN.com and goes up there, you know, relays back down, goes back up, and then goes back to you in the um, in the uh, you know, in your airplane seat. Essentially, I mean, it's like I had a um, we had a CEO once who just said like, oh, they're just fancy like telephone poles. And we're like, no, it's a whole satellite. You can't talk about my satellite like that. But it's it's a very expensive telephone pole. It is what it is. All right. Um, so she know. Thanks for joining. She said she just got off work. Thank you for joining anyway. And Lim said it's amazing how many satellites are out there. Got to see some of them when I visit NASA in Houston. Yeah, I've seen. I've seen those. Yeah. Um, so let, 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 let's. The Black Math Academy asked. I'm curious about the math you use in your yeah. field. What kind of math do you use for satellites? There's. So much math. That's a great question. Um, there's orbital, you know, orbital mechanics. So, you know, we're talking physics. Um, we're talking like, you know, that uh, making sure that, uh, oh my God, there's just math everywhere. <laughs> like, where do we even begin? I love that question. Um, orbital mechanics launch, you know, there's kind of these launch equations of like the more fuel that you put on, the more powerful the rocket is, but then the heavier it is. So you need to put more fuel on in order to overcome the fact that it's heavier. So there's there's rocket equations. Um, I was a I was a thermal engineer. So like I mentioned, I was doing radiation heat transfer. Um, there's tons of equations there. 
um, with how everything is interacting. Um, we use simulation tools because it just gets so complicated um, with the way that everything's interacting with each other. You've got solar loading coming from the sun. You've got you know, blockages coming from solar rays. You've got this bouncing off of this part of the satellite. Um, and then you're radiating your heat to space at the same time. Um, so you can kind of do these like, like hand calcs, um, but then um, not as easy as a parabolic equation. Yeah. Well, we use, like, <laughs> we use temperature to the fourth. Um, there's so many variables. Yes. Uh, there's a bit Black Math Academy said variables all over the place. There are, I mean, it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of um, equations and, you know, substitution for what is this property of this material. Um, I, you know, I like practical applications of math as an engineer. Um, so I always did better in math when we used an example. Um, so, you know, sat satellites, you, you can do that. Um, propulsion equations, like how you make, you know, how you make a satellite move when you, when you, you know, launch it. Um, calculating where you are, where your trajectory is, back, you know, back to the orbital mechanics. Um, there's, there's, there's like math in every part. And I'm sure like a solar array engineer is yelling at me for not mentioning <laughs> all of the equations involved with like turning solar energy into usable, you know, usable energy on the, on the spacecraft. Special, special geometry, perhaps. I, see, and you were getting on me, Jeanette, about just my animal knowledge, which is so basic <laughs> compared to like all the math you have to know. Oh, spatial geometry. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've got I, again, back to you know, a thermal engineer. You've got these these solar array panels. You can kind of see there that are twisting you know so that they're always facing the sun while the satellite is also going around the earth so the angle you know changes the the ability to radiate heat changes because the solar array is changing as you go around the orbit um a lot of you know i've used a lot of geometry as well so a lot of algebra a lot of like advanced algebra and then um, a lot of geometry as well so here's an interesting question that you may or may not know the answer to is this the math that Katherine Johnson used? Are we still using her math? Um, it is incredible to me that we did all of that on slide rolls. You know, yeah. <laughs> we went to the moon on slide rolls. Um, but yeah, those are the, I mean, those are the foundational, I mean, the, the folks doing the Apollo missions and the missions before that wrote the math for all of this, you know, the, the launch equations, the orbital, uh, you know, they were figuring all of that out and like by hand with, you know, we have we have a lot of simulations and models, you know, now that do that. Um, the, the even the thermal software was written in Fortran. So I had to use Fortran in school because all of this, all of this stuff, all this software was written, you know, back in the 60s when, you know, you had punch cards. I mean, you've seen that picture of of the MIT engineer with next to the stack of like Fortran punch cards um, and, and her code. Um, yeah, we were, we're still we're still coding in Fortran because that's the that's what it's based on. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, he said, um, 
Oh, wow. So, okay. The Black Math Academy said, thank you for that. I love to share this pragmatic math with my students. And I spoke to Katherine Johnson last year. That's incredible. incredible. Her favorite math. Yeah. Her favorite math subject is geometry. Go figure, right? I would believe that. I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Punch cards, right, Lim? Uh, let me scroll back because I know there was a question I missed. Um, if you know the answer. So what's next for space? What do we look forward to in the future? Um, you know, certainly you more ubiquitous space travel, you know, for folks that are that are interested in that. Um, there's a lot going on and, you know, uh, looking towards the moon. Um, going back there, um, there's an astronaut named Jeanette who's supposed to launch. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. Um, uh, Jeanette Epps, look, mm -hmm. you know, watch her. Um, I'm, I'm so excited for her to finally go up. Um, there, just more and more, um, the barrier of entry, you know, coming down, the cost coming down for people who want to build a business, you know, based on based on space, um, people who do analytics based on space. I mean, think about like, when you got the iPhone, you know, they didn't know what was going to happen <laughs> with that. But right. now that we like, I think about that with space data, you know, we're going to have all this data of you know, the environment changing and, um, you know, disaster relief, what are we going to do with that? You know, what are we going to do with that with, with climate change? Um, not to mention, I mean, going back to your biology, there's so much biological research that's done on the ISS and that's going to be, you know, going to be done on Axiom and any of the other uh, folks that are doing space stations. And um, I, I know that, that, you know, that research is, is very pivotal. I couldn't give, you know, specific examples, but I hear that, you know, as I go to conferences and things like that. I mean, the biology that's, that's done on the space station is, is incredible. There's so much research going on there. Yeah, you know, and I, I know of one, one uh, biologist, space biologist, I know that's not her tone, she's gonna be mad at me, at NASA, who does research on, you know, biological, <coughs> oh, okay. Well, we are coming to the end of the podcast. We only have a few minutes. I do see one more question. E extraterrestrials. There's a there's an institution called the SETI Institution. I think it's in Northern California, where they are trying to make contact with extraterrestrials. I don't think they've done it. Um, I think it's been featured in some some movies and things like that. It's S E S E T I. Um, you know, especially with all these James Webb images coming back, like you have to think there's other life out there. I mean, you really, you know, you really do. Um, is it like ours? It, you know, what what is it? You know, what is it like? I, I just I just think, you know, the probability that we're the only life out there is, you know, so low. And I'd be curious what you think as a biologist, too. Um <clears throat> Yeah, no, you know, and I've, I've had this discussion with people at NASA and, um, you know, when we think of extraterrestrials, we think of um, life on another planet that's like us, uh, intelligent life, something we can, somebody we can communicate with, but we don't think of bacterial life or, you know, very small amoeba-like life. Yeah. And that type of life on another planet means there's life on another planet. It's an extraterrestrial that we've contacted, but you know, they can't communicate with us. So yeah. 
is there an extraterrestrials? Of course, I, yes, yes. I mean, if we have sulfur vents here that have life in there. So if we have that, then they can be on another planet. Is it intelligent life? Is it life that can talk to us? Well, that remains to be seen. Do you think we're we're using radio frequency waves <laughs> doing that the last hundred years? The universe has been around for millions of years. You know, right. maybe somebody just hasn't gotten around to doing radio frequency and you know in the spectrum that we're looking at. But I think there's even some life, you know, signs of life on like moons around Jupiter and you know and things like that. We're we're trying to find you know signs of life even a little bit closer to home than these mm -hmm. these distant galaxies. Yeah, and you know, and uh, one of my favorite comics is Calvin and Hobbes, and there was one strip where they was like, he saw litter and all that stuff, and he was like, one of the signs that there are intelligent life is the fact that they don't want to talk to us. You know? <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, you know, I mean, look how we treat our planet. They probably don't want to come here. They don't want to deal with us. So. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of comments before we head out. So she said, there's a famous guy in Mexico who does US UFO research. Oopsie. Cool. The Black Math Academy says to join a weaver in those eight feet tall killing machines. We don't want that yeah. at all. Uh, and Danielle said, extraterrestrial life could be traveling on asteroids, meteors, exactly. meteors, biological gas. And, you know, we've seen, or not me personally, NASA's seen water on you know, asteroids and, you know, small debris. And if there's water, there's probably life somewhere. So, yeah. so before we cut out though, is there any last thing that you want to add or share before we end our podcast tonight? Um, thank you for all the questions. Um, I love, I love all of these questions. Um, and I hope, I hope, you know, you've learned a little bit about just this part of STEM, you know, it's just a little, a little part of STEM. Um, there's so it's so broad and you know thank you for highlighting so many different careers and so many different you know ways to get into this field and even for people who aren't you know uh math or science you know is their forte we need artists you know we need artists to do these drawings we need public relations people we need recruiters we need you know, it's not just it's not just for people that are in math and science. You can help in the aerospace world in so many you know so many different fields. Engineers are terrible artists. Engineers are terrible at PR. So we really need the specialists. You know, in the, in those kind of fields. Yeah, yeah. There's I'm, I it, when you come across a good artist that's in STEM, that's just yeah amazing to do. So um, thank you for everybody again for joining. Thank you, Jeanette, for taking your time out tonight to be on the show. I appreciate everyone and um, good night. Good night. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>